This morning, would you turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 11 today. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, and we'll go to verse 14. There is a Bible on your Nova Community Church app, as well as notes. These are hard paper notes in your bulletin, but if you want to do all of this on your device, uh, it's all there on the Nova Community Church app. Like Adam was praying this morning, we are in a sermon series on the letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, and our series is entitled One, and it's all about the unity that we have in Christ and the oneness that the community of believers called the church has in one another. In the first few verses in chapter 1, the author of the letter, the Apostle Paul, is laying the foundation for the purpose of the community of believers, the church. And here we see a number of theological concepts that will be brought back later in the coming weeks. And what we get here in the beginning is really an amazing picture of what a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. And today's sermon is important. It is, it's vitally important. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's so important. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, it's, it's very important also. What would be your answer if someone asked you, what does it mean to be a Christian? What would your answer be if someone asked you, what does it mean, what does it mean to be a Christian? I thought about that question this week and I, and I in my mind, Perhaps it was the Lord that just led me to this uh, memory that I had. I was 13 years old, and uh, um, at the age of 10, 11, and 12, I went to a weekend camp at least once a year that the church had that I was attending. And it was in northern, northeast San Diego County, and it was just a weekend camp for uh, fourth and fifth graders. And I, I loved those times, horseback riding, um, uh, doing leather crafts and making birdhouses and, and singing and, and um, campfires with s'mores and really good messages for, our, uh, for boys, um, fourth and fifth grade. But when I turned 13, I was too old to go and I was really bummed out. And, uh, but one of the counselors at that weekend camp, he knew that I was really bummed out about it, and they had a bunch of boys going at, to this camp, and I was aged out. But in this one cabin that this counselor had, there were so many boys that he needed an assistant. And so he asked me to, to go with him, and so I went as a junior counselor. I never did anything like this before, and he was just saying, just hang with me and I'll, and I'll uh, guide you through. And so uh, after the first night, there was you know, a campfire, a dinner and a campfire, and then we had a, a, a good message that kind of set, set the tone for the whole weekend. And then the counselors all went to a room and then they gave us some leadership instruction. They said, when you go back to your cabin and you talk to your boys, um, ask them 
if they're Christians or not. And so I was listening intently because I'm 13 and I want to do the right thing. And, and we get back to our cabin and there's these fourth grade boys, these 10 year old boys. And there were a lot of them. And so he said, I'll take these boys and we'll go over here. And you take these five and you talk to them over there. So I said, okay. And so we sat there and um, we just started talking about the message that night. And then I just blurted out, I remember this, how many of you are Christians? And they just kind of looked at each other, and a couple guys started to raise their hand. And I had six guys, let's say, I really don't remember how many, but there was about five or six. But five guys raised their hands, and there was one who didn't. And then I said, I didn't know what else to say, so I said, how many of you are not Christians? <laughs> and then so that one boy who was a friend who got invited by another friend, he kind of looked around and, you know, raised his hand, and then I didn't know what to do. I, I just didn't know what to do at, at that point. And so I thought, uh, okay, um, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Because I didn't know what to do. I, I, and we played some games and then went to sleep. I told the, my counselor, that senior guy, I said, this is what happened. And he said, oh, okay, okay. Um, and he opened up his Bible and he opened up, and I opened up mine. He says, John 3.16. Just, just read him that verse. Talk to him about that verse after breakfast. And I said, okay, good. I got up, had breakfast. I said, let's go for a hike. We went for a hike, just me and this, this 10-year-old. And I opened up my Bible, and he had a Bible too, but couldn't find John 3.16. I helped him find it, and we underlined or highlighted it. And then I read it to him. And uh, I said, do you believe this? And he said, yes. And I said, that's it. You're a Christian now. And that was it. That was the first time in my life that I got to share the good news of Jesus Christ, how God loves us so much that he sent his son. And that if we put our trust and belief in him, we won't perish, but we'll have everlasting life. Ephesians chapter one, verse 11, our text today. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to, to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Today we're going to talk about what it means to be a Christian. And it seems pretty simplistic, but I got a lot out of this this week. What do you understand Christianity to be? is a good question. What do you understand Christianity to be? And I love to ask that question to people that I encounter. If you are a Christian today, it's a good day to affirm who you are. And if you're not a Christian today, it's a good day <clears throat> to figure out what you're rejecting or what you're missing out in being a Christian. Because you, you rarely meet someone who has rejected Christianity and they know what they rejected. 
I find that, I, I don't think I've ever talked to someone and asked, what do you understand Christianity, Christianity to be? And then they give me an answer that is, that is close, even close to what it really means to be a Christian. When someone tells me that they have rejected Christianity, I'd like to ask them that question, what do you understand Christianity to be? And they usually end up telling me something that I don't recognize in what it is to be a Christian. But I need to, I always tell them, you need to know what you're really rejecting. So today is going to be great for, for all of us. Now, what does it mean to be a Christian? From our text today, number one, it means truth. It means truth to hear and believe. It's truth to hear and believe. In, in verse 13 it says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now Christianity doesn't begin by doing something. It begins by you hearing something. It's the message of truth. So when you ask somebody, if you ever ask somebody, and I hope that you will um, after today, if you ever ask somebody, what do you understand Christianity to be? Most of the time, this is the most common answer I hear when I ask, what do you understand Christianity to be? People will, will answer this way. You know, I don't have time to go to church. That's what they'll answer. Or they'll answer like, you know, I can't find a church that I like. So they're talking about church immediately when you ask them about Christianity. But here in this, in this verse, in verse 13, what we're, we're told about what a Christian hears first, and he hears truth. It's all about, it's, it's, it's truth. Now, it's interesting, in today's cultural landscape, the truth is really challenging to talk about. I remember when we first started our church in, in 1986, uh, we were running into roadblocks, and frankly, we, we really weren't prepared to run into the roadblocks with people that we were running into. Most of the people that we were encountering in 1986, when we started our church, in the age that, that we were, I was 24 years old, um, were mostly young people who were college graduates, and so they were sincere and thoughtful people who were not yet Christians. And it seems like people had a, these people had a philosophical and an intellectual, they had philosophical and intellectual thoughts that were different, that were difficult to sort of navigate. And so we, we were running into roadblocks, and so we prayed and, and said, God help us, because we're really feeling unprepared to deal with these people that you're sending to us, these young people. And God answered our prayer. And he sent a young Christian anthropologist um, to our church. And he became a really good friend. And eventually he became a pastor in our church. And he really helped us to interpret the cultural landscape that we were dealing with. Now if you know what I'm talking about in 1986, towards the end of the 20th century, you understand the word postmodernism. And that's what we were dealing with. Um, Postmodernism is a late 20th century philosophy and concept that says that there's no real truth that people can know. 
And it says that knowledge is always made or invented, not discovered, because knowledge that's made by people, a person can't know with certainty that all ideas in facts are believed instead of known in postmodernism. In postmodernism, no matter what you claim, your claim is no better than someone else's claim. And all claims are equal, and there is no truth, and it's all relative. And man, that was, that was difficult, and we were very unprepared until God sent us Dr. Rush to help us work through all of that. And over time, though postmodernism faced its challenges as it died out, it had difficulties because it attacked everything, is what postmodernism did. G.K. Chesterton said, by rebelling against everything, you lose the right to rebel against anything. It's true. And postmodernists thought that the idea that there was no truth would be liberating, but it wasn't in the end. In the end, it means that you would just object to everything. Today, the idea of truth being relative is so embedded in our culture right now. But we're, we're being told you can't live without the truth. But it's not just the truth to hear and to believe. It's also about the gospel. That's what we see in verse 13. It's about the truth and it's about the gospel. Now the word gospel, it means the announcement of something that's happened in history. It's good news. It's about the announcement of something that happened in history. The Bible has a lot to say about how to live your life. But the Bible is primarily about what has happened in history. Most religions say, here's how to live your life. And you, if you live your life well, then you'll be saved. But Christianity says, it, it doesn't say, here's what you must do. Christianity says, here's what God did in history in order to save you. Now the gospel is not good advice for what you should do in your life. The gospel is what's already been done. There is a difference there. Do you, do you see the difference there? I think that that's important. The historical accounts of the Bible are things that have been done for you. So when you ask the question, what do you understand Christianity to be? You'll get answers mostly, like I said, about, well, I don't want to go to church all the time. But the other answer, maybe the second most common answer, is an objection about something about the Bible that I'll hear. So I'll say, what do you understand Christianity to be? And people will say, well, you know what, I don't agree what the Bible says about, and then you can fill in that blank. They'll say, I don't agree what the Bible says about sexuality. Therefore, I can't be a Christian. See, it's important to know that Christianity is not about sexuality. And I'll tell them that. And they'll say, well, I don't know, the Bible, you know, I'll say the historical truth of the love of God. That he sent his son, born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life, announced the kingdom of God, he was arrested and found guilty of crimes he did not commit. 
He was murdered on a cross and then proved he was God by rising on the third day. That is what Christianity is about. And if that's true, and if that's good news to you, we can work out our differences with things like sexuality, with things like church attendance. We can work out differences of ways that we baptize people through sprinkling or through pouring or through immersing. We can work out things like what songs shall we sing, hymns or rock and roll worship songs. We can work out things like congregational votes on things and men and women in church leadership because Christianity is not about those things. It's about a historical fact, an announcement of good news that God loved us so that he sent his son. Christianity is not advice on how to live. Christianity is an announcement of what God has done. And to be a Christian means to hear the truth of the gospel, of what God has done through Jesus Christ, his son, and then to trust that and to believe that truth. Number one, what it means to be a Christian, it's about truth. Number two, it's about hope. It's a life-shaping certainty about your future. In verse 12, in the middle, we read, it says, we who were first to put our hope in Christ. Human beings, all of us, are hope-based creatures. Because how you live in the present, how you live today, is inevitably what you think about the future. The best way to illustrate this, I think I've used this before, but I'll, I'll use it again. The best way to illustrate this is, let's say you're an employer, you're a boss, or you're a supervisor, and you hire two people. And imagine putting these two people in um, plain white jumpsuits for a, as a uniform. And you put on them white gloves and white hats and goggles. And then you put them in a small, undecorated, windowless, ugly, dark, stark, stuffy, stale room to work in. And then you give them menial, uninteresting, boring, repetitious, and purposeless work to do for that day. You get the picture? But before they begin their work, you walk up to one of them and you whisper in their ear, at the end of the day, I will pay you $50. And then you walk over to the other person and you whisper in their ear, at the end of the day, I will pay you $25,000. Now, guaranteed, both of the workers who are wearing the same white jumpsuit in the same room, doing the same task, are processing all of what you just whispered in their ear. And worker number one is, is thinking, I don't need this in my life, right? They're, they're thinking, I, I can find a better job with better working conditions, certainly a better uniform, um, and I, 
I don't need this in my life. And the worker number two, they're going, wow, this isn't so bad. Um, I hate my uniform, but it's worth it. It's hot and stuffy in this room, but at least it's not cold. This is a menial task, but it's better, better than being unemployed. Now, now, why is that? It's because they have different futures, and they're thinking differently about their present. Now, this is it. What you believe about your future will either sweeten your life or it's going to sour your life. It's either going to brighten your life or it's going to darken your life. Christians have a hope, and that makes all the difference in the present. What is that hope? So this is what it means to be a Christian. Number one, it's about truth that you, to hear and believe. It's about hope, which is a life-shaping certainty about your future. And number three, it's about future glory. Future glory, making all things right again. In, in verse 14 of our text today, it says, it, it's speaking of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So let's unpack this verse, and we'll start from the end, and we'll, we'll work our way to the beginning. The first is this. You are God's possession. You are God's possession. Now, this idea goes along with something that we'll talk about next week in verse 18, and when it speaks about inheritance. So what is your inheritance? It, it's, your inheritance is your net worth. It's the bulk of your wealth. It's your most treasured possession. Let's say you have a piece of artwork that's valuable or a piece of jewelry that, um, that's valuable, something that you inherited. And so you have that. It's worth, let's just say it's worth 10 to 20 times more than anything else that you own. This, this piece of jewelry, this, this piece of art. And let's just say you're asleep one night in your apartment and you're abruptly awoken by a smoke alarm. You know, the annoying sound of one of those smoke alarms going off when you cook your bacon too, too much. And, and it, just, it just blares out and you're trying to, you know, wave and trying to, you know, do something to stop it. So you're, you're sleeping in your apartment and all of a sudden their smoke alarm goes off and then you wake up and you... You smell smoke, and so you know what's happening already, and so you immediately get up and you grab that piece of art, that jewelry piece, and then you're thinking, what else do I need? I'll grab my laptop, and then you run, right? And you take off, and right there, you have 95% of your net worth, and so you're going to be fine. Your insurance will cover the furniture and you know, all that other stuff like that. But the Bible has the audacity to say, that God owns all the galaxies. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns all the stars and all the he owns He owns all these things. But when he looks at you, he says, this is my precious treasure. You are my precious treasure. When he looks at you, God feels wealthy and he, he sees you as more valuable than anything else that he's created. And it's funny because all of this 
was recorded in the Bible before social scientists and psychologists um, came up with self-esteem. Before self-esteem was even thought about, all of this took place. If you Google self-esteem, and I don't know if you ever have, it's just it's hilarious how much stuff comes up. I mean, it's all about self-care, right? It's all about thinking of your talents and your strengths, things you're good at, your gifts in life. Self-esteem, when you Google it, it's all about there's a lot of weight loss stuff there, interestingly enough. It, it says there's a lot of, you need to spend more time doing what you want to do rather than what you need to do. You need to do your things, but you need to spend more time doing things that you want to do in your life. Self-esteem talks about spending more time with people who appreciate you and affirm you and, and, and think positive things about you. That's what self-esteem is all about. But what is all of that compared to what God thinks about you? That you are a special treasure of God. And when God thinks of me, his heart wells up and God feels wealthy when he thinks about you. The, the great God of the universe will use all of his omniscient power to protect me and to rescue me no matter what the cost. And if you are a Christian, and if you can't take that truth in the, into the deepest part of your heart and your mind, you're going to be searching for self-esteem and significance, just like everyone else will. Everyone else is scrounging for affirmation. Everyone else is scratching for compliments. Everyone else is stretching for approval. And they're always fearful, always anxious, and always asking, am I really enough? Do you know the glory of being God's special treasure? The second thing we can say is not just that you're God's special, God's treasured possession. The second thing is you are looking forward to redemption. You're looking forward to redemption. That's this future glory. In verse 14 it says, Until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What does that mean? Because last week... Our director of local missions, Garrett, gave us a sermon because the few verses before we learned that last week that we are redeemed. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, in him we have redemption. So what does this mean that there's a redemption in the future? The word redemption means buy back, just like what Garrett said last week. It, it, the word redemption means that we have freedom from all the consequences of sin. And when you're a Christian, in some ways your redemption was in the past because you're freed from the penalty of sin. You're forgiven, you're, you're pardoned. But you're not free from the presence and the power of sin in your present life. But someday you will be. Romans 8 is about your future redemption. Let's take a look at that up here on the screen. It says in verse 18... It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's a great, great sentence. That our present sufferings, all the things we suffer from presently, they're not even worth comparing 
to the glory, the future glory that's going to be revealed in us. Verse 21, for the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And there's this, this interplay between creation and the children of God together, experiencing this future redemption together. Verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. It's a great, great selection of scriptures about our future glory and redemption. What does this mean? It means that on the last day of history, that glory will descend on all people who were in Christ. And that glory, that glory is so perfect and so powerful and so transformative that the blast of its beauty will cleanse the whole universe of all that is wrong with it. Everything wrong with all those who are in Christ will be cleansed. And everything wrong with the world and the brokenness and the pain of this world will be made right. And all death and all decay and all suffering and all disease and all imperfection, all of it will be gone. And so it means something to me today as I think about that future glory that's, that's, that I'm waiting for. It's, it's there. John Newton, who was an uh, uh, Anglican clergyman, a former slave turned abolitionist, writer of Amazing Grace, he says, the gospel makes the worst times bearable and the best times livable. Leavable. John Newton. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, You are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to the praise of his glory. This word deposit, it means first installment. And so I, I think about this and I think, we're not only promised the Holy Spirit, that we have a first installment of him now. That when you first hear the word of truth, and you, and you believe it, and you, you, you cross the line, and you, and you become a Christian, you get a deposit of the very same glory that we're going to experience in the future, and it's full at the end of time, but we get a little deposit. We get a deposit of the Holy Spirit within, a, within us. And all of us, it's, we seem to underestimate the power of the deposit of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we have within us. And when we have the Holy Spirit, you... You think of things that you never thought of before, that you feel things that you never felt before, and you have this whole new identity. You're a new creation in Jesus. So how do you know that God really does treasure you to bring you truth and to bring you hope and to bring you future glory? You can just take a look at the cross of Christ where the Father and the Son were willing to lose each other for you. And that's how you know you're treasured. And we, we read in 
another letter to a church in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus Christ emptied himself. He emptied himself of his own glory so that you can be filled with glory. I have two points of application today. They're very simple. The first point of application I have for you today is to affirm your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. As you, as you think about what does it mean to be a Christian, to, to look back and say, do I understand that there is truth, that there is hope, and that there is future glory in my life? To affirm your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then, would you prepare your heart with this? As you encounter family and friends, neighbors, co-workers who don't know Jesus Christ, that they aren't yet a Christian, would you be willing to just prepare your heart and ask them that very, very simple question? What does it mean to be a Christian? What do you think it means to be a Christian? And that will just open up a whole bunch of great conversation for you in your life. Every person on the face of this earth is looking for truth, they're looking for hope, and they're looking to the future for glory. And Jesus Christ makes all of that possible for those of us who believe. Amen.